Hey there. I consider myself open-minded in the sense that I will listen or read any opinion from somebody that I just have a basic human level of respect for. I'm open in terms of being willing to take that in, and if I get some small thing from it, if there's one point that I that resonates with me, that stays with me, that's great. Even if I disagree with the whole of it, if there's one small thing, I'll take that. You know, you can't afford to pick and choose what resources are going to interest you or especially help you in some way. So I'd like to I'd like to approach the world from an open-minded place in that sense where even if I'm not open-minded in that my mind changes constantly, I'd like to think that I can listen and try to take something from anything no matter where it's coming from, even if I vehemently disagree with it or I find it repulsive, I'd like to believe that I can take something, but I don't force myself either. You know, I don't force myself to take something from just anything, but I open myself to that possibility, which to me is what open-mindedness is. But I'm also extremely stubborn in that my viewpoint is rarely going to change unless I'm the one who puts the work in. It's kind of like with research, if you've ever had a passion for a certain subject that involves a lot of research, for me that's organized crime. And if I read something, especially if it's not sourced, especially if the source isn't clear, I'll want to do the research myself before my mind is actually going to be convinced that what this person is saying is accurate. And a lot of people take this approach to just life, the news, you know, I don't, when something's in the news, I, I don't think I really take it in enough these days to really need to verify anything myself. Not that it isn't important, but it's just, I don't want to spend my time researching current events all the time. But I also don't want to give an opinion on those things either. So it's, it's just kind of like a, there's no real win or lose to it for me personally. I just... You know, I, if there's a video of it or something, I'll check that out because usually that'll give you some kind of idea. That'll give you some kind of a objectivity. But, you know, I am very stubborn when it comes to my viewpoints. And they do change, but as I said, it's often because I want to put the work in. I want to see the evidence. I want to even just have the experience. I think for me, it's very, as far as my worldview and stuff goes, it's more experiential than it is based on some kind of evidence and I won't get into evidence and truth again and all that but I, I do like to get my own take on things and as a result you know that is a form of stubbornness and I don't know I feel like it you know these things get twisted up though as, as many things do where I don't know, I recently finished the Elric series. There's actually, there's more books, but I finished the main run of the series. And I've mentioned it on here before, but it's just, it's incredible. There's some stuff around the early mid to mid part of the series where you can definitely pick up on the kind of pulpy Conan influence, even though it's this high fantasy that's very strange and unique. And colorful and, and it's just nobody writes like Michael Moorcock before him after him nobody can do it like him 
you know, there is an element to where, you know, the character Elric, without giving anything away, because I'm, I'm recommending this series highly to anyone who wants to read some unique fantasy. And if you're already familiar with it, then I can't imagine you'd disagree with me. But do your own research. <laughs> read it yourself. Because that's, that's an example of the experiential form of research that, you know, read it, read a book, a fiction book. Read it to know that it's good, because I highly recommend it. And if you don't agree, you know, that's a valid opinion too, of course. But with the Elric series, yeah, there's some stuff like in the early mid-period without giving anything away about the actual story. You know, where you can tell there's kind of that more serial dare I say pulpy, and I don't think it's truly pulpy, but you can tell where it's kind of, even though it's part of this larger ongoing story, it's pulpy and serial in that it tells these more, these short-term stories, you know, in some of the early, not the first book, but definitely the early to mid-period, I felt like this is what was going on, definitely the mid-period maybe. It all fits together in the end, but still, you definitely have these kind of one-off storylines that don't necessarily captivate you the way that an ongoing story would, like the first book and then the last few books in the series. But one of the incredible things about it is you just get the impression Michael Moorcock figured it all out. <laughs> and by that, I don't mean just telling a great story, telling a great fantasy story coming up with a, a unique way of fantasy storytelling, for lack of a better phrase. I don't know if there's a lack in that. That seems like a pretty, that seems like a full idea to me. Great fantasy storytelling, especially considering how early he was writing this stuff. I mean, this isn't a guy who was writing in the 80s or 90s. You know, he was doing this very early on. Uh, I'd have to look at the dates, but I know some of this stuff was written in the 1960s. He's been around for a very long time, and his other books as well. I think in one of my book report episodes, which this is, this is a book report episode, but in one of my book report episodes, I recommended his book, The Ice Schooner. Brutal bone, you know, <laughs> brutal bone, but like a brutal ice and bone. I don't even know if I'd call it a fantasy story, although it is. Uh, but that one I, I highly recommend, too. It's a one-off book. It's not part of a series, The Ice Schooner. But I did an episode about that probably a year ago. I don't know when that was. Maybe late last year. So I highly recommend that one as well. And everything I've read from Michael Moorcock is just fantastic. Truly, the definition of the word fantastic. Because I think we have a tendency to lose sight of the fact that the word fantasy is in there. Maybe that's one of those things that's obvious to everybody else, but I just had a moment where I was like, oh yeah, the word fantasy is part of the word fantastic, obviously. But I try to use that word fantastic when I'm describing something especially imaginative and especially uh, you know, some sort of fantasy-based story would be fantastic if it's good. But the story itself, this idea too of you know openness, and stubbornness and I don't think I'll give anything away by saying that the book is entirely about the series is the Elric series Elric of Melnabone is all about chaos and order and in particular the balance between those two things and the story culminates in a battle between those I mean basically the entirety of the story is 
you know, it revolves around the balance between chaos and order and the necessity of both of them. The necessity of one sometimes becoming more dominant and the other then becoming more dominant, as well as the balance of them, you know, kind of finding some kind of equilibrium maybe. But uh, it's, it's just a, a very special story because you really get the impression, especially in the end, that Michael Moorcock came to some great understanding. I mean, it reads almost like scripture, the way that he describes the nature of the universe, and especially the relationship between chaos and order, which, you know, I'm not going to find better words than those. I often think I try. But the way he describes chaos is infinite possibility. And order is, you know, we know what order is. And uh, order is often, you know, associated with good. But within order, there's a lot of stagnation. And here, I'm sort of paraphrasing him. I can't take full credit for what I'm saying right now, even though I feel like this just fits in with, with night school in general. I feel like these are the sorts of things that get talked about on here. But uh, the way he describes order is that, you know, even though it, it brings this sense of stability and good, and it gives life meaning in some way, it also leads to stagnation. You know, think rules. Stubbornness. You know, what is stubbornness? It's when something's unchanging. And so order in that sense is very stubborn, and it doesn't change. Very rarely does it change, and it takes chaos to change it. And so chaos represents infinite possibilities, but as, as, he, as Michael Moorcock says in the book, through these characters, I mean, it's not like he's the narrator. It's, this stuff really emerges through this world that he created, through the dialogue, through the, the magic of the story, both the magic sorcery that's within the book, as well as just the entire nature of the world and the way it's described. But so chaos, it represents this infinite possibility, which makes sense. It's all things. It's all things moving in their own way, however they want. And within that, you can grab hold of anything. But what happens when you grab hold of something that's part of this just chaotic whirlwind? That is a way of imposing order. You impose order the second you grab hold of something within that chaos. Because what are you doing? You're trying to make a path or you're trying to just get some kind of sense. You're even just trying to get a sense of direction, if nothing else. You know, because otherwise you don't know what's up, what's down, left, right. And there's a lot of other directions beyond those four. Within chaos, at least. So order is a way of just figuring out what's up, down, left, right. And often it involves choosing a direction but it becomes repetitive. It becomes limited. And a lot of people like that. And you can see where some people's personalities are more prone to order. I mentioned in a recent episode that there's this part of me that just loves order, that loves systems, that doesn't mind waiting in line, even though I don't like the wait, I appreciate that there's a line because I wouldn't want everybody to be rushing up to the counter at the same exact time. I wouldn't want everybody to be fighting over a hot dog. It's nice that we line up. And so there's a lot of value to that. There's a lot of value to having order. But when you and everyone you know and just society and the world 
thinks that order is is the only thing and that we have to minimize or get rid of chaos entirely first of all it's not possible there's always going to be an element of chaos and if you try to push it away completely well you're not going to be ready for it when it comes in and so in that way there's always going to be it's kind of like the way this fits into Elric of Melnabone is is just sometimes one becomes dominant and sometimes chaos really takes over and it feels like that's what's going on now in the world reading this book it felt very relevant and I think people make a mistake because I see people saying things online like like we're the resistance we're the we're the resistance it's funny like it's funny how people are now comparing themselves to the new Star Wars sequels <laughs> you know it's like people didn't like those movies but I'm seeing people compare fighting racism and fighting Donald Trump to like being characters in the new Star Wars movies like the newest ones that have come out and I'm just like huh and I think that you know there's always gonna be a tendency to see yourself as the little guy fighting the man and and that kind of thing and that's fun sometimes it is accurate but I think when you look at these stories you have to look at yourself as both if you're talking about Peter Pan you can't just look at yourself as Peter Pan and the Lost Boys and you can see where you know the modern-day anarchists and you know a lot of these people who never really grew up and I don't say that because I think their views are completely unsophisticated or that they're childish people necessarily but you can see just in the way they dress like punk fashion and not the mohawks and leather jacket but this kind of modern you know bandana you know I don't even know what to call it but you'll you know it if you see it kind of modern anarchist fashion it's, it's very reminiscent of the Lost Boys and Peter Pan in a way and uh, so I, there's this element of never growing up and fighting Captain Hook but there's a lot of reality in fiction but the reality of fiction isn't that you're always the good guy or the little guy fighting the big guy the reality is that, is that you're both of these things the reality is is that you're both Peter Pan and Captain Hook and that's not fun it's not fun to think you're Captain Hook or some people do some people take pleasure in that but again it's that's a case of somebody identifying with one or the other they read Peter Pan and they think you know these lost boys are really up to no good they they never grew up and uh, they they worship some guy in green tights who flies around he looks like some weird he looks like a, somebody cosplaying as Robin Hood looks like a 13 year old cosplaying as Robin Hood and you know I, I mean I can see why somebody would you know there's an argument for Captain Hook and those tend to be the people who like to impose order on other people those tend to be people who like it when the military is in the streets and I feel kind of indifferent to that maybe I'm putting myself out here maybe I'm opening myself up to criticism but I felt very indifferent not of the potential violence being caused by police or the military but the actual presence the visual like my friend in California sent me photos the other night of I mean it sure looked like a tank in Santa Monica 
sure looked like a tank on the corner on the corner of the street in Santa Monica with a, a soldier standing next to it. I don't know if it was a tank, but it, it sure was some kind of armored vehicle. And I felt just completely indifferent to it. And someone would really call me out for saying that. And if I wanted to get, you know, if I wanted to really discuss it, I wouldn't say that I actually do feel indifferent, but simply the visual, simply the idea of it, when I just distance myself, I don't like what that could potentially mean. But I, can, I just felt kind of indifferent to the sight of it. And I never would have imagined that I would see a camouflage tank-type vehicle, a heavy artillery-type vehicle, in the middle of Santa Monica, or wherever this was. I assume it was Santa Monica. My friend lives there. <laughs> so it was just weird. But I can see where there are some people who are excited by that. You know, I might be... I wouldn't even say I'm indifferent. You know, it's somewhere between indifferent and ambivalence. Where it's almost like I want to feel something about it, but I don't quite... It's like I'm ambivalent about being indifferent or indifferent about being ambivalent. And uh, some people, though, might see it and think, oh, that's exciting. Captain Hook's boys are, are really uh, laying down the law. And I don't know if that's the best comparison. I mean, they're pirates. I think in Neverland, everybody is sort of lawless. But that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point I'm getting at, is that you have to see yourself as both Peter Pan or potentially Captain Hook, because they both represent a certain amount of lawlessness. There's a lot of wind. I'm, I'm on a, a soccer field right now, and Daddy's loving it. But I know I know how that wind-swept mobile phone sound effect is, and I know it's not lovely. But hopefully, you can hear my voice. Maybe I'll go crouch down next to this soccer goalpost. Crouch down next to a soccer goalpost and whisper about how I'm indifferent to. <laughs> uh, a militarized presence in residential California cities. Yeah. I'm <laughs> everybody should listen to me, guys. Uh, I, you know, everybody should listen to my opinion. But, uh, but anyway, I mean, it's kind of what I'm getting at, where it's like I was just kind of on this thing where, you know, you could see... fighting the bad guy and he's sending out his his minions but then you look at that and you go well they don't represent order necessarily they represent both order and chaos they represent it both too and so do the lost boys in their own way and i think the story of peter pan i do have the feeling it makes peter pan and the lost boys out to be the good guys obviously it does so it might not be entirely fair the story of Peter, Peter Pan might not be entirely fair in the sense that, you know, I, but I guess Peter Pan too and, and uh, the Lost Boys, they're trying to impose some sort of order too because they see what Captain Hook and the Lost Boys are doing as a form of disorder of its own. I mean, they don't want pirates to take over. And even though they're these rebels fighting these evil pirates who are also kind of goofy, you know, at least in the cartoon version, they're very goofy characters. But you can see where they, Peter Pan and his boys, and his boys, they're trying to impose their own sense of order on these pirates who are trying to impose their, their own sense of order. 
So that part of you, the part of you that does want order, could easily identify with them both. And the part of you that likes chaos can identify with them too. I mean, Peter Pan flies around. That seems pretty chaotic to me. It's something we haven't quite figured out without some sort of technological assistance. We haven't figured out how to perfectly mimic birds and graft wings onto our body. Peter Pan somehow figured it out without wings. But, I mean, being able to fly anywhere, you know, just the fact that we can only move to certain places in certain ways with our body, even with technological assistance, you know, the fact that we are still limited in our movement is a form of order. What would happen if we could do what Peter Pan could do? There'd be a lot of bad people doing bad things if they could literally go anywhere, if they could fly anywhere. But, uh, but yeah, you, that story, you know, you can see where both Peter Pan and the Lost Boys and Captain Hook and his, I was going to call him his Merry Men, I guess just his crew. I don't know if they have a name beyond just being Captain Hook's crew. They both have chaos and order going on with them. And uh, in the Elric story, you know, it's Elric himself, the main character, you know, he's the product of chaos. He's, he's from a long line of royalty, royal sorcerers. He's, a, he's royalty himself, but they are both royalty and sorcerers. And they thrived on chaos. They built their empire on chaos. But it's gotten out of control, you know, as, as their empire has dwindled over the eons, you know, a greater form of chaos has taken hold. The chaos that they harnessed to build their deadly empire has eclipsed them. And so even though Elric is a product of chaos and he depends on chaos, his power depends on chaos, he still has to fight chaos. And order will essentially destroy him. It will basically remove him from the worldly equation. An orderly world can't really include someone like him who relies so heavily on chaos to exist. And maybe it's perfect that there's a bunch of wind coming through here. Maybe it's perfect that there's a, a wind-swept sound effect. It turns out I'm not in a field that's and I'm not actually experiencing wind. This is a sound effect that I'm adding after the fact. <laughs> but uh, that's an element of chaos too, you know? You can really find it everywhere. Hey, buddy. What's up, buddy? I don't know, buddy. Once you take a dog to a field, you know, they, they get a thrill. They get a thrill. They can run around wherever. Um, but I, I don't have too much more to say, actually. I think that about covers it but just it's it's always that balance where within chaos there is this infinite possibility but that's its own form of stagnation just like order is as michael moorcock says i mean i think about it creatively where sometimes it can be hard to even draw something or record something because there's so much you could say or do there's so many different things you could draw even if you don't have an idea beforehand you know, I mean, even just the, the act of sitting down and drawing is a way of finding order from chaos because you've figured out that, okay, you know, I've got to do something. I could do anything. I could do anything right now, but I've got to do something. 
I've got to draw something. And even choosing the tool that you're going to create something with, even putting the piece of paper, the piece of paper and the pen, you know, those are a form of order as well. And that's before you even get into the potential ideas. And even if you don't have an idea, even if you haven't visualized or come up with something that you're going to draw before you actually start drawing it, you are still, like even if you just start with a single line, the second you draw a line, you limit the possibilities of what that drawing could be. That's why people say a, a blank slate. So that phrase comes from, obviously. But a blank slate is a form of completion. And I got into this a little bit in the, probably a lot, in the Destruction of the Empty Spaces episode, one of those several episodes. But, you know, when you destroy an empty space, you suddenly limit the number of possibilities that could exist. But in, in order to make something exist, you impose a certain order and you have to limit the possibilities. But the more you create, the more you add to that blank slate, the more limited those possibilities come. But that's why we like the result. Because we've narrowed it down to something, and that something is desirable. But once it's done, you can't add anything to it. So it does stagnate. A finished drawing is pure stagnation, because you're no longer doing things to it. And if it's something that never ends, that's fine, but you're still going to limit the number of possibilities. It's still going to get narrower and narrower. I mean, I run into the problem constantly with my stippling line work style where, you know, it's a combination of stippling and line work in most cases, just kind of creating textures, creating shapes. And it's way too easy to fill it in too much. The longer I work on it, the more likely I'm going to be upset. I filled in too much white space. There's not enough contrast. So even if you work on something forever, even if you're one of those pretentious artists who's like, this is a piece that never finishes. This is a never-ending art piece. You know, even if you're someone who does that, and that's fine if, if you want to do that, but you know, even if you're doing that, you're still limiting the possibilities of what that thing could be. Just because it doesn't end doesn't mean that it suddenly becomes limitless. Because you are filling things in. You are limiting the number of possibilities, the potential of what it could be. You are still imposing order on something that was once a blank slate. And it's kind of what happens with ideas. You know, it's kind of like when you commit yourself to a certain philosophy or belief system or a political ideology. You know, you're imposing a sense of order on yourself. And you need that to some degree to exist. You, know, you need to have values. You need to know kind of what your sense of right and wrong is. But it's easy to get stuck in that. It's easy to stagnate. And it's easy to stop developing your view of the world. But I think a way around that is to take small things in, even from unlikely sources, even from sources that would otherwise be repellent. Even things that disgust you, that you don't like. I think by taking small things from those things, when it feels natural, being open to the possibility of that, I think that does help you stop stagnating. And you might not be able to get around the fact that your life needs some amount of order. In the same way that in the Elric series, 
order is the goal because chaos taking over the world is dark it's gloomy it's weird elric is very weird the story he the character himself is very weird but the story is extremely weird the world is very weird much more bizarre than even even you know lord of the rings you know, and it probably wouldn't have existed. It definitely wouldn't have existed if not for Lord of the Rings, even though it's a very different story, hence it being unique fantasy. Because when I say something is fantasy, but it's not unique, chances are it's just riffing off Lord of the Rings. Chances are it's somebody who is a huge Tolkien fan, basically trying to recreate it in their own way. They're using something that's already very orderly, which is Tolkien's universe, Tolkien's world and just kind of switching out the names of the characters. That's what you see often from other fantasy series. It's like, people won't know that I'm retelling Lord of the Rings if I change the names of the characters and call this species something else. So they're not orcs and dwarves. They're this and that. But Elric is significant because it doesn't do that. Elric itself is an example of Michael Moorcock exercising chaos and order, finding a balance. Sometimes it goes further in one direction. Sometimes, you know, it, uh, it veers in the other. Sometimes it can be a very chaotic story. Sometimes it can feel, you know, very linear. He manages to do it both at separate times and together sometimes as well. So I can't recommend that enough. And I'm not going to say anything else about that particular series because I, I highly recommend you read it and I don't want to give anything away. Because spoilers, they're not about whether something is new or old or if it's been around long enough. It's kind of like the too soon thing with humor where I talked recently about how people have this idea that if you make a joke about something like a tragedy that recently happened people will say too soon and now I have this not soon enough approach I kind of feel similarly in some ways about spoilers where I don't think there's any too soon about spoilers it's more just about how you talk about the series you know or, or how kind of how universal the story is maybe in some ways I don't know I haven't really thought that out <laughs> that's a very half-baked idea right there spoilers are just like when people say too soon it's similar because people do have this idea that it's too soon and uh, I don't know sometimes when someone says spoiler alert sometimes that's worse than something actually being spoiled <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I don't want to actually spoil the Elric series for those who are interested because I think that it does have some twists It's not super surprising, but I think it does have its the whole story's twisting the whole thing is just this. It's kind of a spire You know you think about the visual of a spire. I feel like the whole story is a spire unto itself Where it, it is linear, but it's also kind of curving around that tower rather than going straight up and that really is a perfect illustration of that balance between chaos and order. Order from chaos. A lot of people like that idea. The band Order from Chaos. A lot of people who think about this. I feel like most things are based around it in some way or another. Whether they use, 
Whether those are the words that are used or not, I feel like most things are based around that spire. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.